Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, the Justice Department just today, this morning, is filing a lawsuit against a sweeping new Republican-backed voting law in Georgia, saying it represents intentional discrimination against black voters and is unconstitutional. Let's check in with the reporter on that story, Chris Strom. He's a national security reporter for Bloomberg News. Chris, big news today. What do we know right now? So this is the first major action that the Justice Department under under Biden and Merrick Garland is taking in regard to voting rights. There's been a lot of criticism against the department as Republican-controlled uh, states move to pass voting laws that uh, critics say are really restrictive and discriminate. And, um, you know, the department has been facing a lot of pressure. And today they came out with their first action. And, um, you know, it's against the uh, law that uh, the Georgia governor, uh, Brian Kemp, had signed in March that uh, restricts uh, voting access in, in uh, ballot drop boxes and other things. So um, one of the things that we all have heard about this um, Georgia law is that it makes it illegal to approach a person and give him or her food and water while they're standing in line to vote. Is that considered somehow racist in itself or is it more of a, is it more of a secondary issue here I'm, I'm having trouble understanding why you why why the department of justice would consider this uh racist so the issue that you mentioned there is the secondary issue the the substance of the complaint is really about the um the other sections of the voting law um that in, that imposes new voter identification requirements um that um it uh, limits what are the voter what are the voter by. identification requirements do you have to prove who you are somehow Yes, you can no longer use like photocopies of of, um, of uh, documents. You have to that makes use sense. Original, you have to use those original be, documents. Those could be easily doctored, right? I mean, doesn't it make sense to have to prove your identity? Sure. I mean, you know, the, the thing is, is that you know, as as uh, you know, Garland has said, voting uh, identification laws in and of themselves are not, um, you know, are are not bad. The question becomes how they're applied and what the consequences are going to be. And if if they begin to um, cause, you know, hardships, especially targeted against, you know, minorities, then there's the potential for violations of federal law. And that's what the, the Justice Department is alleging here. Um, you know, what what Garland and, and uh, you know, the DOJ is saying is that this law just goes too far in terms of in terms of uh, what it's what it uh, is requiring and and how it's going to have a negative impact, especially on minorities. And that's where the kind of, you know, rubber meets the road. The, the issue of, you know, the, um, you know, making, making it impossible or making it illegal for people to approach uh, voters with water and food, you know, that's a much secondary issue. And, um, and, you know, critics, you know, I mean, supporters of that restriction say that voters were being harassed in line. And so it's justified to, you know, put that kind of restriction out there. All right, Chris. So the Justice Department files here today uh, the lawsuit. What are next steps 
Well, the next steps are going to be that there's several lawsuits that are that have already been filed uh, against this law, and those will probably most likely go first into into court, um, and the Justice Department will evaluate whether it's going to join in any of those lawsuits, which would be kind of a quicker avenue for the Justice Department to become involved, or if the Justice Department will pursue its own track. Um, right now, the Justice Department is pursuing its own track, and so you know, they will go into court and begin to, you know, make their make their argument. And it's also possible that, you know, they reach some kind of a settlement with the uh, with uh, Georgia um, where the, you know, the governor agrees to make certain, you know, changes through, you know, executive authority that then satisfies the Justice Department. So it's a long way to go before we know how this will play out. At the same time, the Justice Department is saying that they're looking at other laws in other states, and they said clearly today that this was the first of, of many anticipated actions. And so we can probably expect that, you know, the department will move against uh, other laws in other states in the coming months. Chris, I wonder on a on a broader level, on a federal level, is there any um, move towards taking away all of this, um, all of these misunderstandings and, and putting into place a policy the likes of which we see, for example, here in Germany, when you register to vote, which you're required to do at the age of 18, you're issued a federal identification card and everyone has one and there's no, you know, question uh, about um, whether certain groups are held back for lack of these identification cards. Um. There's, I mean, so you know, in the United States, the, the voting, the voting is voting is ran by the by the states, and ah, there's point, no, yeah. there there is no federal authority that kind of dictates. There's no, you know, I mean, if you want to say if there's a federal identification, then you can say it's a driver's license. Although, you know, passport there, there are, passport can be another one, but there, you know, there's there's cutouts where, um, you know, people just get state identification cards rather than like you know a an actual driver's license. Um, you know, there is talk about passing a federal legislation, and that's been that's been uh, you know stalled in Congress. It's very divisive right now, and it doesn't look like it's going to have the support to move forward. There is a push for um, that the Justice Department wants Congress to pass legislation that would give it the ability to um, oversee when states make changes to their election laws. That the Justice Department would kind of have to sign off on that. But I got to say, like you know. Our, you know, Congress in the United States is very deadlocked right now, and it doesn't seem like any legislation is going to get through anytime soon. Yeah, no, it's clearly it's very polarized. I was just and you make a good point that it's uh, the fact that it's on a state basis makes it more difficult for a federal republic uh, to do something like that. A federal republic like Germany does. It's just that, um, you know, there's there's been so much um, strife around this issue in the United States. It. it, it to me, it would make sense that you have to identify yourself, but it should also be, you know, everyone should get the same kind of identification. I guess it's just a little bit more difficult in um, a United States kind of federal situation. Right. And it's, and it's not just the identification cards either that's an issue in some of these states like Georgia. It's also it, it, there's a couple of other factors, too. There's also just access to to uh, to, to voting, uh, you know, like using ballot drop boxes and and the hours in which you can vote and what DOJ is saying with the with the Georgia law is that the Georgia law limits uh, uh, ballot 
uh, drop boxes and specifically limits them in in minor in minority uh, uh, communities and also limits the ability for people to vote during hours. All right. Well, it's a fascinating development. We'll definitely follow your reporting, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us. Chris Strom is our national security reporter for Bloomberg News covering the Department of Justice suing Georgia over the new voter law. This is Bloomberg. It is Pride Month, uh, and here in New York City, the NYC Pride Parade will take place this Sunday. Uh, We want to check in with Allison Witherspoon. She's the Chief Marketing Officer for Nissan. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. Love to get a sense of how you guys at Nissan are, you know, kind of aligning yourself or or interacting with uh, this community here as uh, we celebrate Pride Month. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are very proud to be a part of NYC Pride. We're actually supporters of and, and part of the celebrations for Pride events around the country, not just for Pride Month in the month of June, but also throughout the year. Um, so our support continues actually through April of 2022 with various Pride celebrations around the country. So for us, from a Pride standpoint and, and how we support the LGBTQ plus community, it actually starts with our own employees and it starts internally. So we want to make sure we have a commitment to, uh, we're committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we strive to make sure that our internal policies, our benefit packages, our support for employees is inclusive of everyone. So it starts first internally, and then we get into how do we support externally with the LGBTQ community. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I wonder about, um, this kind of position at Nissan, just in regards to Japan, um, not famously an inclusive culture. What's the LGBTQ plus situation there? Yeah, actually, I, I worked in Japan for a couple of years. So I was there for 2017 through 2019. So I have direct experience in this. I think, um, you know, obviously, Asian markets are very different culturally. From a support of LGBTQ communities, actually, Nissan is a supporter of the celebration of the Tokyo Rainbow Pride Parade. Um, We also have a lot Mm. of inclusivity policies and program and training for all of our employees, and that includes in our our home market in Japan. Allison, give us a sense as chief marketing officer for Nissan, how Nissan markets and promotes its products to this community. Anything unique uh, that you guys are doing? I think for us at, at Nissan, it's not just one month. To, to us, it's not just the month of June. We want to be supporting and engaging with the LGBTQ community throughout the year. So this is why we have a full schedule of Pride events, which we support. Um, we work with all of our regions around the country to make sure that we're supporting at a local level. So it, it's not just in the month of June. This is a year-round support that is part of not just our, our business strategy, but also our marketing strategy. And I mean, obviously, it's just the right thing to do. You want to show, you know, more than tolerance, acceptance and and love. I don't want to sound corny, but, you know, that's that's what makes life worth living. Right. Um, On the (laughs) on the business side of things, though, Allison, does it does it pay dividends? I mean, do you see a broader acceptance from that community of your products? I think, yes, we do. And obviously, we know that the LGBTQ community has a a very large amount of of spending. So 
I think there's that piece of it, but we also see that when you show up and you show up authentically and not just in the month of June, we have seen very strong acceptance of our brand as well as our products from this community. That's a great message. Authenticity is important, and I think consumers definitely recognize that. Allison Witherspoon talking to us as the chief marketing officer at Nissan. Uh, Really interesting um, and cool. We focus, obviously, on this issue in the uh, the month and uh, pride month but certainly should be paying attention to it all year round so allison thank you so much for joining us now let's bring in andrew chain in right now chief executive officer at procure am um procure has the etf uh ufo it's not an etf for unidentified flying objects but rather one that it is a pure play investment in um, space and things surrounding space exploration. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, what is um, the interest right now in a pure play space ETF as we start to see, you know, almost on a it feels like a weekly basis, um, Elon Musk putting rockets up there and uh, new satellite technologies coming out that even the average person can afford. You know, the the appetite for space investing is unlike any I've seen um, in, in my career. And there's been so many transformational technological advancements that have helped allow us to reduce the cost of sending things out into outer space. We're also even seeing it from the military and defense side of government spending um, really ramping up space efforts as well. So we're at a really unprecedented, unprecedented time for the space industry. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that you can get pure play exposure to these days. All right, Andrew, so looking at UFO, what are some of the big holdings in UFO? Certainly. So we have companies like Virgin Galactic, Maxar. We just recently, in the most recent up, uh, uh, rebalance, added uh, company MDA to the fund. Um, you also have a lot of satellite operators and providers, launch companies, and even some of your diversified aerospace and defense names that are major players in the space industry, like your Boeings and your Lockheed. So um, if I look at the uh, ETF over the last year, it's just shot up from 20 to uh, 30, almost 32. So you're looking at a 50% gain in the last 12 months. What's your expectation going out a year or two? You know, I can't really make, uh, I'm not allowed to make projections, but what we what we can look at is there's various investment banks and research houses that have all started building focused space analyst teams. And companies like Morgan Stanley are predicting that the space industry could be over a trillion dollars by 2040. Bank of America even pointing that the space could, uh, economy could be roughly $2.7 trillion by 2045. And as of the most recent space report numbers in 2019, the industry is currently at about $424 billion. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of these analysts are pointing to broadband Internet and communications really uh, driving that growth over the next several years. Andrew, while we have you, I have to ask you about UFOs. I've generally not been a believer in UFOs, but there's been a lot of military footage i you know i'm not sure if it's uh air force or, or, or navy pilots a lot of documentaries lately yeah and i understand there's some pentagon report out there give us what you know about that 
Yes, yeah, so we're we're waiting for the, uh, the the public release. There have been several um, you know individuals and entities that have been um, you know, given copies of the report already. But this was something that was passed in a coronavirus uh, release plan that this report would need to come out. And essentially, um, from what we're hearing, that's been leaked already. Um, you know, it discusses hundreds of uh, confirmed reports of having identified um, you know, these, these UFOs, or as they're now calling them, UAPs. And we don't know what they are. And so although we might not have an answer saying that, okay, these crafts that we can't identify or understand are foreign adversaries or otherworldly, um, it, it's terrifying from, from both you know, standpoints. One, that you know, our adversaries could be 100 years ahead of us technologically, or on the other end, that um, you know, these are otherworldly you know, crafts what? that we can't even understand. What? Oh, I see. So you're saying it's possible that rather than aliens, these are earthly foreign adversaries. Yes. Because I, you know, any logical person um, who who thinks about it rationally has to assume there are many other life forms in the universe, right? I mean, it's very large, and 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 it's very unlikely that we happen to be on the leading edge of life intelligence, right? Yeah, and it's it's amazing to think that you know if there were other countries that were advanced enough to come up with these technologies that defy you know our understanding of physics, um, you know that they've just been sitting on these technologies and not using them for other purposes. So you know to to think that there you know could be other technologies that maybe you know we're you know not far away from being able to understand or potentially harness and thinking about how that could advance uh, you know human you know space. Uh, you know, desires as well as just, you know, what we can learn from potentially, you know, others out there that might be a lot smarter than we are. So, you know, the fact that our government can't rule that out, I think, is, you know, potentially what could be the big takeaway from this. Well, yeah, if, if, if there's that kind of technology coming from other countries on Earth, that <laughs> is slightly terrifying, and we don't know about it. But, Paul Sweeney, don't you have to assume in you know a galaxy that a universe that goes out 13 billion light years <laughs> that one of the I don't know how many millions of other planets there are how many millions of other solar systems there are on uh, on at least one of those most likely thousands of them life forms have developed you know I'm as big a Star Trek fan I go way back to the original Star Trek um, so yes is my answer but uh, you know, we just you just haven't really seen any evidence. But this is this new stuff that we're seeing just recently from some of these military aircraft are, are very interesting. It'll be interesting to see what kind of conclusion the Pentagon comes up with. But Andrew, I mean, when you have all this talk about potential UFOs, is that good for the space business? I certainly think so. You know, if you look at it, you know, our ability to learn from whatever these technologies are could, you know, advance us, you know, extremely quickly if we're able to figure out, you know, how to reverse engineer some of this. And from, you know, a defense standpoint, um, you, you've got to think that there's a there's a good chance that we could see more government and military expenditures towards space, whether it's trying to figure out how to create these technologies ourselves, or whether it's just tracking, identifying, cataloging, and trying to understand where these crafts that are moving, you know, within our own airspace. So this is a national defense issue as well as, you know, one that could provide opportunities. Is know, is the Space matter. Force, Andrew, still a thing? I know you spent a lot of time Absolutely. thinking about this. Is it still a thing? Absolutely. And we're okay. seeing spending going towards Space Force. And, you know, that's a, a growing branch of our military.
Sweet. <laughs> that is at, awesome. At first, I thought it was just like, what? what is this? You know, can't the Air Force just continue doing it? But maybe uh, maybe they're on to something. When, so. when are we going to see this report officially released? So there was, it was supposed to be released, actually, today. Um, and now they're saying that it could be released by the end of the month. So, you know, keep, keep your eyes okay. peeled. This is something that we're, we're certainly looking forward to its release. And right, maybe we actually we'll have... added a, a risk disclosure to, to the UFO <laughs> prospectus uh, because of potential UAP and UFO risks. All right. Well, so it, if cool. it has some cool stuff, we'll have you back on. Andrew Shannon, he's a chief executive officer for Procure AM, talking to us about UFOs, the ETF, and also UFO potentially the real thing, Matt. I mean, again, I'm a big fan of Star Trek. I'll go there. You know, um, we'll see. But anyway, it's attracting money, so that's important to us at Bloomberg. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Now, let's get over to Ben Slavin right now, Global Head of ETFs and Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon, because we've seen um, an interesting trend here, mutual funds converting into ETFs. Ben, why are, we, why are we seeing this? What's the benefit to investors? Well, an industry milestone occurred in March with the first ever conversion. And then a few weeks ago, we saw dimensional funds convert um, around $30 billion in mutual fund assets to ETFs, which is notable for the scale. But why is this happening? I mean, really, because investors are demanding it. Um, the market is preferring investment content delivered in the ETF wrapper. And the data shows that mutual fund flows have been persistently negative and ETF flows have been persistently positive over the last several years. And the recent SEC ruling... Um, and regulatory developments that were adopted last year really set the stage to make this easier for asset managers to convert products and bring some of these strategies to market uh, inside an ETF wrapper. But some mutual funds can transition easily to the ETF structure, but some are not well suited due to the underlying investment strategies. But this is a trend I expect to continue, and it will attract a lot of attention going forward. So, Ben, I'm just unclear. What is the advantage to the investor for, you know, going from a mutual fund structure to ETF structure? Well, there are several advantages that ETFs bring. Um, one certainly is around taxation. And certainly um, the ETF uh, wrapper offers in many ways a better mousetrap compared to mutual funds when it comes to managing the underlying taxes. Um, so the ETF structure does allow um, the portfolio managers to, to eliminate or um, avoid distributing capital gains to investors compared to mutual funds. But other features that ETFs have, such as daily liquidity, daily transparency, um, and certainly lower fees on average in many cases, is another big driver um, behind the trend towards ETF adoption and managers thinking about converting funds into the ETF wrapper. What are the drawbacks of an, ET of an ETF wrapper around a mutual fund? Well, I think, um, you know, the drawbacks are few, but the, the process is, um, you know, somewhat complicated. Um, and for investors um, who have bought their mutual fund shares directly with the company, um, they would need a brokerage account um, where many mutual fund transfer agencies have not uh, or are not able uh, to easily um, have an equity security or an equity-like security on their platform. Um, 
And so that's a big piece of conversion. But, but more recently, many investors are buying their mutual funds through brokerage platforms. Um, and so it's a quite easy conversion um, you know, if you have those accounts uh, in place. Um, and also many of the fund companies um, are offering you know, other options for investors who don't want to convert. But generally speaking, uh, in the conversions we've seen, most investors have opted uh, to transition their shares from a mutual fund to an ETF. So, um, just a good headline coming across the Bloomberg Terminal, the Justice Department to sue Georgia over voting restrictions. That's according to the Washington Post, and we'll have more reporting on that. Uh, Shows you where this Justice Department is. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, new sheriff in town, I guess. Uh, ben Slavin uh, joining us here. Talk to us about... Um, the record flows we're seeing into ETFs. It just seems like there's nonstop money coming into the EF, ETF space. What have you seen so far this year? Well, the ETF industry continues to set records. We saw the global ETF flow top over 500 billion year to date and over a trillion in the trailing 12 month period. Um, so the industry globally sits at 9 trillion, which is now around 14% of all funds. But here in the U.S., we've seen about $450 billion in inflow year-to-date, which would put us on pace to shatter the record uh, that we saw last year. But what's remarkable is the breadth. Um, it's not just a few products or a few issuers. We are seeing uh, that inflow spread across the industry, up and down the lead table, but also across investment type as well. So it's not just equities, it's fixed income. And, and other multi-asset products. The other interesting thing we are seeing uh, here at BNY is really the record pace of new fund launches. So with that inflow, um, you know, issuers are also launching product at a record pace. We've seen over 150 new ETFs launched this year alone. Wow. Um, and again, after a record year last year. Um, so we expect this trend to continue. Um, also, trading volume is also up mm. significantly as well with all the new products in the flow, which which is not surprising. Yeah, just an extraordinary development in financial services really over the last several years is the growth of ETFs. Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs and Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon, giving us uh, the latest uh, on ETFs. Again, continued uh, record inflows into the ETF space. Just amazing. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.